This episode of Paper Team is brought to you by Roadmap Writers. Roadmap Writers gives screenwriters the tools needed to take their skills to the next level with courses taught by industry executives. In just two years, Roadmap has helped almost 50 writers find representation. Visit RoadmapWriters.com and use the code ROADMAP, all caps, all one word, to save $15 off your first program. Welcome to Paper Team, a podcast about television writing and becoming a TV writer. I'm Alex Friedman, aka TV Calling. And I'm Nick Watson on Twitter at underscore NJ Watson. And today we're going to talk about Staffing 101. From samples to shorter meetings, we'll go over what you need to know about how TV writers get jobs in a writer's room, as well as how you can best prepare yourself for this process. Before we get into this episode, we just wanted to say that although a lot of the advice we'll be discussing in this episode may feel familiar to regular Paper Team listeners, everything we've covered so far, for example, connecting content to your own experiences in life, was primarily aimed at that, the content you were writing for yourself, i.e. spec scripts. This episode is all about working on other people's projects and work. In essence, staffing is about putting yourself in a position to be useful for someone else. So the first question is obviously, what is staffing season? I'm sure most of you have heard this term, but maybe you're not entirely familiar with what it means. So staffing season is the time of year where network broadcast TV pilots have been given a green light to go to series, and then they need to start hiring writers to fill out their rooms and write the rest of the episodes for that season. So what does this mean for you? Well, traditionally, it's when most writers are going to find work for the year, and especially when staff writers are going to get their first or maybe second break. Staffing season is basically the ultimate game of music chairs, broadcast networks greenlight pilot to series, and everyone is scrambling to fill a very limited amount of seats compared to the hundreds if not thousands of writers looking for their next gig. So on that note, let's take a look at how it all plays out on the broadcast calendar. So in any given year, January to February is when everyone is preparing for staffing season. Now, on the writing side, that might be getting your samples ready and polished. On the agency management side, that might be them looking out for what shows uh, it sounds like the network are liking and maybe going to be green lighting and figuring out which writers might be good for that and getting those contacts ready to submit. And then on the network side, it's obviously them reading all of these pilot scripts, watching the cuts of the pilots and things that are coming in, and then thinking about down the track, making those decisions as to which ones they're going to green light. So then as we get a little bit closer uh, around March to April, this is when a lot of the writers are going to be going out and starting to take general meetings around places, whether that be production companies, studios, networks, producers, things like that. They're just kind of getting out there and making their faces known and having their stuff read so that when these opportunities do come up, they're in the prime position to be considered for them. And then this is ultimately when the networks are going to be coming to their decisions about which pilots they will green light to the series. And that will culminate in the network upfronts, which happen in mid to late May, when they not only know which shows are going to to go to series, but they've already kind of figured out their programming blocks and they're presenting those to advertisers and sponsors. But before the upfronts in mid to late May, uh, we have the actual staffing season that takes place usually around April and May. Shows will usually start reading writers even before they know if they're getting picked up by their network. So agents and managers will be sending samples out well in advance and showrunners as well as their poor assistants will often have hundreds of resumes and scripts on their desk to read through and narrow down who they might consider for each position in the room. And by mid-June, that is when most deals are closed and pre-production has started in earnest. But what about the distinction between broadcast and cable? 
Right. I mean, increasingly, TV is moving more and more off this traditional network development and broadcast cycle. So you're seeing a lot of shows getting greenlit and staffing year round. You know, you could get staffed in January or September just as easily as you could be staffed in May with everybody else, particularly for these cable streaming shows, animation, etc. So the traditional May staffing season might not even be a priority for you as a writer if you don't have quote-unquote network sensibilities. For instance, me and my writing partner Kelly tend to write pretty zany heightened animation and a little bit of live action, so we weren't really pushing hard in May to get staffed on, say, a multicam for CBS or even a lot of family single cams on ABC. You know, we just didn't have the right samples for them, and if we're being honest, probably wouldn't be the best choices in terms of what we like to write anyway, so. How dare you insult the zaniness level of multicam on CBS? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, so instead, our agent was really focusing more on the cable opportunities for us, shows on Netflix, Hulu, Amazon as well. The wisdom was, unless we actually knew creator or the showrunner or someone high up on those network shows to vouch for us, there's a good chance our sample probably wouldn't even be read amongst that pile uh, for the network staffing season anyway. Yeah, and with OTTs becoming more prevalent and networks wanting their own IPs and services to own, uh, there's definitely this evolution of the staffing game. And I think one of the key lessons that people can take about staffing in general is to be flexible. Just because you have an awesome cop sample doesn't mean you should only be stuck going to all the cop shows. It's about thinking larger and long-term. So if you look at what broadcast networks are offering, a lot of them are evolving their content to match the evolving sensibilities of cables and OTTs. For example, CBS All Access and Disney, uh, or at least the new Disney service, are prime examples of that. So don't be stuck in the idea that network shows only have these specific sensibilities only based on what the linear channel is offering. you got to also think big picture. And at this stage, you can also be helping your reps by being proactive and keeping an eye on which shows are getting announced and greenlit. If you have some assistant back channels, you can even be keeping an ear to the ground for those that are going to be going ahead but haven't been announced yet and filtering that information through to your reps, you know, and letting them know that you're interested in staff on that show or those kind of shows. Even if they already know about it, it's just a good reminder for them to look into it for you and keep you on their mind as they're busy juggling all their other clients. Now, of course, some reps are more receptive to this than others, so make sure you know what your agent or manager likes. This was a bird's eye view of the staffing process from a calendar level, but let's look at the nitty gritty of the writer's room and specifically the different levels in the room that are going to be staffed. Not all writers are equal as much as we would like to think that. Uh, TV <laughs> writers have titles and ranks and they're paid commensurately with their experience. So staff writers are usually in their first or second year of a room. And that's what everyone's really gunning for, these entry-level staff writer positions. Then story editor is the next step up from staff writer, and that tends to come after about a year, sometimes two, especially if you change shows after the first year, it's more and more common to be stuck in staff writer level for one more year. And importantly for WGA writers, story editor and up is when you start actually getting paid script fees for each script that you write in the season in addition to your salary rather than it being kind of counted against your weekly rate in the way that staff writers are. So after that, you roughly tend to move up one rank each year, and with that comes a pay bump. So you go from story editor to executive story editor, or ESE. Co-producer is the next level, then producer, supervising producer, and co-executive producer, or co-EP. Now, the exception to this continuing to move up titles is the title of executive producer, which is usually reserved for, say, the showrunner or other key creative producers in the show. Co-EP is usually the highest rank that a writer can reach without being the showrunner or creator or having some sort of high 
high level involvement in the show, like a writer producer at a production company or an overall deal. Yeah, a lot of number twos are sort of in between that co-EP and EP spot and will really depend on both the budget as well as the hierarchy in that room. And just note that in animation, particularly the IATSE Animation Guild shows and 11-minute shows where it's either storyboard driven or the episodes are handed out freelance rather than in a full-time room, the rank of story editor is actually a different thing altogether. A story editor in animation is usually an experienced writer-producer who's running the room and assigning the scripts, giving back notes. The freelance writers may be liaising with the board artists about story issues. I'd say the closest analog for them might be more like a co-EP who's running the room while the showrunner is busy in production or post. So now that we know what the different ranks and levels of the room are, how does a showrunner or producer go about building that room out? Well, every writer's room will change shape and number depending on the showrunner's preference as well as the money they're giving to staff their room. In fact, there's a more recent trend for cable shows to give complete control over to one or two people. Game of Thrones and True Detective are an example of shows without really a writer's room. But by and large, most TV shows do have a writer's room. In fact, we would not be here otherwise. Now, money is not equally distributed. A lot of rooms tend to be top-heavy, meaning most of the money is spent getting producer-level writers and above, and then they fill in the handful of openings with ESCs or staff writers and so forth. So let's say you have $100 to spend on a writer's room. 60 to maybe $70 of that batch is going to be spent on maybe one or two high-level people. They're either going to be the number twos who can run a room, or maybe they're getting hired because they have this amazing level of production experience. Then you'll be spending maybe 15 to 20 bucks getting mid-level your supervising producers, your co-producers who've been in a bunch of rooms already and are bringing in valuable experience pitching, writing, and breaking episodes week after week. And that leaves you with just 5 or $10 for lower levels who will most likely be a couple of story editors and a staff writer or vice versa. And oftentimes that money will be spent with people who already have show experiences. And the staff writer position will be maybe a handover from a diversity program or paid by the studio slash network, as we'll get into in just a second. So let's talk in a little more detail about the staff writer position specifically. Yeah, so a lot of the mid to higher level jobs are going to go to writers that the showrunner or producers have worked with before. But because of that lack of money, once you get down to staff writer levels, most of those lower level positions will be filled internally, either through the show itself, let's say assistants or friends of the EPs, or those diversity programs slash diversity hires. The latter are directly paid by programs and networks, so there's actually an extra incentive for the rooms to hire diverse. They are essentially getting a free rider in their room, and this is extremely valuable as the further down you go in that ladder, and the further down you go, in fact, into production and that breaking process of the show, the fewer riders will be actively present physically in the room, which means the more brains you can have up top, the better and faster you can break stories and move on. Right. And for that reason, it also means that writing teams are highly desirable at a staff writer level. The show only has to pay them as one writer. Now, that might suck for the writing team, who are essentially getting half pay each, but it's great for the show as they're getting two writers in the room for the price of one. So, you know, it's a tricky proposition to nab one of these highly coveted staff writer jobs if you're just some random writer coming in out of nowhere and wanting to get on a show. You can increase your chances exponentially by any combination of the following things. You know, firstly, having reps, especially if those reps 
perhaps also represent the showrunner or the creator or perhaps other writers on the show. Secondly, having met with the producers or execs involved in the project who are happy to pass your stuff along. Thirdly, having personal connections with people on the show through your network. Uh, another thing you can do is obviously being a part of the fellowship or diversity programs, working on the show support staff, like a writer's assistant, a script coordinator, so you can be promoted internally. Again, being on a writing team or just having a strong sample and life experience. You know, something unique about you that would make you a great fit for this particular show, like having worked as a lawyer for a legal procedural. If you don't have any of those things, it's going to be a pretty big shot in the dark to try and get staffed. Let's talk about the actual process of staffing. And the reality is there are multiple levels and gatekeepers to pass when it comes to getting staffed on a show. You won't always have to go through every one of them, but typically the more angles you can attack it from, the better. So looking at who's who in that process, if your agent slash manager is trying to get you staffed on the show, these are the people they're trying to get to read your samples and take a meeting with in order for them to increase your chances of getting that job. So the first one up is either the producer or production company. So this could be anything from the production company that actually developed the show, you know, found the script, developed it, packaged it, sold it to the studio network, or it could just be an EP who was attached because of their name or an overall deal they have at the network and maybe doesn't have as much active involvement in the day-to-day of the show. So how much influence these people have varies from place to place, but the good thing about meeting with them is that they often have a number of projects and shows on their slate. So if you make a good impression on an executive there, they can keep you in mind as the staffing needs arise, not just for this one show, but for everything they have a hand in. So whether you meet with them for a general early on in staffing season and something pops up and they consider you for it, or your rep sends their stuff directly hoping for them to pass it along to a showrunner and they know that they are looking for a staff writer, the production company or perhaps producer is often the first line of defense to assault this kind of staffing fortress. Mm. The next barrier of entry is actually the studio slash network. And the studio will often have been more of an active uh, participant and be more involved in a project through acquisition and development than the network. So they tend to have a stronger voice in staffing than the network, who are often there for final approvals once a showrunner has made their choices or picked a short list of writers for a spot. Studio and network tend to be less involved in staffing decisions for low-level writers, trusting the showrunners to pick who they want, and because it's not a great expense or risk for them to worry about at that point. They're typically more vocal about having a say in hiring the higher-up positions, especially the showrunner themselves or perhaps co-EPs and people that will cost them a lot of money. That said, it's pretty common for writers to meet with or have already met studio and or network executives before officially being hired onto the show. Like production companies, reps can also use these avenues to get your material in front of showrunners in the first place. Some companies are very hands-off with staffing, while others go so far as to keep lists of studio-slash-network approved hires and send that along to showrunners when they're staffing up their rooms. The next person you're going to be taking a meeting with, if you've kind of successfully made it through those, is the showrunner or executive producer. Now, this is the end boss for staffing. If you are in the room with the showrunner or EP on the show, then you've already done something right. Your material was good enough that they want to meet you. Perhaps you were even recommended by someone from the production company or network or studio or someone they've worked with before, like another writer. So especially for the staff writer level, this meeting is more often than not just to gauge your personality. Will they get along with you 10 to 12 hours a day in the room for the next 20 weeks? Are you funny, personable, passionate? Are you actually 
actually a crazy axe murderer with no personal hygiene. Get the idea. Showrunner meetings vary from laid-back, casual conversations about yourself, you know, more like your average general meeting, while others will expect you to come in ready to pitch ideas and speak intelligently about the show and what you're going to bring to the room. So be prepared for either of those extremes. If the showrunner and the other high levels like you, you're pretty much in, but you will sometimes have to go tick off the other boxes if you haven't met with, say, the studio network execs before they make that final hiring decision. Yeah, showrunner meetings are the most important ones to ace, yet conversely are also the trickiest ones to get for the simple fact that showrunners and EPs have a very finite amount of time. They are already dealing with other show-related problems, maybe from production. We'll talk a bit later about ways of getting them, but getting a shorter meeting is in of itself often the last step before you are getting hired on that staff. So it's a really important step. Yeah, and at all stages of these meetings, your agent or manager will be calling and asking for feedback and keeping close track of you know how close they are to making a decision and whether you're in contention for it. So if you've had a showrunner meeting and know any favors you can call in, like friends or former co-workers of the showrunner, babysitters, hairdressers, EPs, who can put in a good word for you, you know, now is the time to do it. And on that note, let's go over some tips and tricks and advice to ace those meetings, and especially the three key meetings for staffing, which are the general meeting, the staffing meeting, and the Shorner meeting. If you want more detail about the differences between those, we did a previous episode on this, so you can check out Meetings 101, Generals and TV Staffing, which is PT62, if you want a little more information, particularly about general meetings and how to prep for those. Short version of which, of course, being that this is the beginning of a relationship, it's not a a goal in and of itself that's going to get you work. But let's talk about the staffing meeting, which are usually happening with executives at those networks or production companies. And the first thing to note is that you got to remember the shows you're watching when you're going to those meetings and preferably they're going to be ones from that network or that studio and especially during staffing season executives also want to know what else you've read besides the couple pilots that you're meeting on so your reps hopefully will have given you the picked up pilots or the ones still to be decided on so you got to read them all right it's kind of like the reverse pokemon except for scripts you got to read them all especially the ones from the company or network you're meeting with Right, totally. And I I think, though, at the same time, don't be afraid to talk about shows or other pilots or IPs maybe that you're passionate about that aren't on their network. I think that they kind of see through people who come in and go, I only watch everything on CBS. It's my favorite channel, blah, 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 blah. So, you know, they're people, too. They probably love Westworld and Handmaid's Tale as much as you, even if they're not the ones making it. So I think that just being able to talk freely about your interests and the things you're passionate about gives them a sense for the kind of stuff that you'd be good for, you know, your tastes, your style, your tone. So even if you don't get this show that you're meeting for, maybe they'll have ABC version of Westworld coming out next year and the exec will remember you for that or from their meeting notes that they keep and so they know oh this would be a good writer and bring you back next year for that Moving on to the Shorner meeting itself, and sometimes you may not even be meeting with a Shorner, you may be meeting with an EP level, but all those tips still apply. And the first one is, as Jane Espenson once said, the Shorner meeting is really the pants meeting. They want to make sure you're not some crazy person who doesn't wear pants. They've already read your material, they know your background, they know your experience, they know you might fit well in that spot they're looking to fill, so really be yourself. I often say the best meetings are the ones we spend the least time talking about the job itself. Now, this might be a little less true for showrunner meetings than general meetings, but if you're vibing and getting along with them so much that you barely talk about work, it's a good sign that they're probably going to enjoy spending 60 hours a week in the room with you. And much like with staffing meetings, you got to come into those showrunner meetings prepared with maybe some stories and pitches. The biggest mistake you can make when it comes to that showrunner meeting is not knowing the show. So you got to know the characters' names or prior episode of the show if 
it isn't just a pilot, you gotta know the themes and tone of the show, especially if it is a show that's a long running series, you don't have any excuses. These people have spent years working on this project and they're bringing you in to join their team. So just spend a couple of days binging that show. It doesn't take too long. And if they do want you to pitch, I would say don't be afraid to take a couple of big swings or present something new that maybe they hadn't thought of before. You know, like writing a spec for a fellowship. A lot of people can come up with very down-the-middle ideas that you would expect from the show, but the ones that stand out are going to be memorable. So that said, they should still feel authentic to the tone of the show and the characters, but if you pitch something that makes the show want to go, oh, huh, you know, I didn't really think of that, then chances are they will appreciate that kind of creative thinking in the room as well. Yeah, conversely, don't go into the meeting expecting to pitch necessarily. Showrunners are looking for different things in that meeting, and some may actually be taken aback if you go in too hard from the get-go and start pitching ideas left and right for half an hour. It might read more as you trying to improve the show instead of adding to that conversation. Obviously, every human interaction is going to be different, so it's hard to give a definite answer for this, but get a feel for the flow of the conversation. Sometimes they may actually ask you to pitch things. Other times, they just want to hear your own life story and what you will be bringing to the room as a human being, not as a writer. And going back to your own research, if it's deeper in the process, you will likely be seeing a cut of the pilot at some point before that meeting. So take notes of how it compares to the script you've already read, hopefully. A produced pilot is almost never identical to the script that was delivered a couple of months prior. So stay updated. You don't want to be that person who starts talking about how much you love this secondary character from the pilot script who ended up completely scrapped once they entered production. Yeah. So when Kelly and I went in for the staffing meeting for season two of Final Space, uh, we were given four episodes from the first season to watch and the first season hadn't been released yet so we got sent those at around 5 p.m and our meeting was like 10 a.m the next morning so i stayed up late and i watched every episode twice and the first one was sort of for that general experience of watching it the stories the characters how it made you feel and the second time i watched it i took really detailed notes on you know names not just of characters but locations objects the kind of slang and vernacular they use you know random side characters i paid attention to the act structure and the timing the character dynamics you know the themes now, a lot of that didn't come up in the meeting, but some of it did, and it made me feel confident that I knew the show inside and out, and uh, they did actually ask us to pitch some ideas, and so because we understood the show like that, we were able to pitch ideas that were closely in line to what they had in mind for the next season, including one incredibly specific random side character callback that we pitched and then found out they already had in episode nine, so, you know, while also trying to put our own personal spin on it. Yeah, that's awesome. I think that's where that whole spec script research comes in, and that experience of writing this fake episode for an existing TV show is when you're breaking that spec script, you're going to be doing that research for the characters, for the story, for the way they break their stories. You're essentially trying to imitate the way a writer's room works, except from your own living room. So that's the kind of experience I think is very valuable once you get into those staffing meetings. So what if you're meeting on a show that you're not incredibly excited about? How do you navigate that? Yeah, just uh, go into the meeting, sit down and just say hard pass and then walk out. <laughs> Uh, but really, you got to find something you like in that show, even if you hated everything about it. So let's say you're interviewing for a position on this new hot NBC show called Cardboard Box, based on the intellectual property of literal cardboard boxes. <laughs> so at first glance, that doesn't sound super intriguing. I mean, Cardboard Box, the TV show, uh, but think about all the possibilities. You know, I really love this one cardboard box maker who reminded me of my uncle, who's also working in a factory. Or, I really love the world you're creating here. Cardboard boxes are such an integral part of our society, especially now that Amazon has taken over our lives. Maybe there's a story about waste and the environment. That's an issue that's really close to my heart. 
you also can be lying about things you don't like, but you got to find something. Yeah, I mean, I think you can take the shows that you're not as excited about and come into that seeing the meeting as almost an opportunity to show how if you were hired, you could improve the show, not in the way Alex was saying before. But if you were brought in, what could you do to make it better? Because that's what the showrunner ultimately wants writers who will improve and elevate their show. Now, obviously, you don't present it like here's everything you're doing wrong, your show sucks. But if you seem excited about say, fleshing out XYZ female character and her backstory and making her more active in the plot, that might be something they were already getting notes on from the network or feedback from the audience. And now they know that if they hire you, they could have someone who'd be helpful in making that happen for them. It's akin to what that famous cult, I think it's called improv, uh, <laughs> says about yes and instead of no but. That's basically the whole meeting in a nutshell. And to that point, you got to play up your strength. I mean, this is valid for both executive and showrunner meetings. If you are, let's say, a character person, you can highlight what you loved about them and what angles you found interesting. It's not necessarily about hard pitching story ideas as much as general areas of interest. And also, you got to remember to connect that content to yourself. This is always the advice we give, whether for meetings or networking, and it holds true for staffing and showrunner meetings. Like we said up top, you've probably done that same connection to material you've created and samples you've sent out for yourselves. And maybe they read the spec pilot about your sister's pick farm, and now is the time to bring that personal emotional connection outward to the show you're staffing for, not just those samples you spec'd. So what are the unique experiences you're bringing to the table? Hopefully by that point, you have a good sense of who you are as a person and a writer to know what that is. So take a deep breath and relax because it really is about you being a real human being and a real hero at that point. <laughs> yeah, I think if you had the option of keeping every single one of these tips and tricks in your head and trying to tick all the boxes in the meeting or just forgetting about them completely and being relaxed and being yourself, you'd probably be better off doing the latter. You know, absorb from this what is helpful to you, then just relax and let it all go. Don't overthink it or try too hard to shoehorn in every little point you want to hit in this meeting. I think you're going to come off better if you go with the flow and connect with them on that basic human level rather than giving you know, prepared talking points about why you're perfect for their show. You're telling me you shouldn't print out this uh, checklist of an episode and then come into the meeting with this uh, list and then check in front of the <laughs> showrunner as you talk. Give it to points. the showrunner and make them check off every point as Ooh. to why you're the perfect writer. No, don't no. do that. I'm being triggered back to high school right now. <laughs> So we're going to go through a couple of things that are going to be useful for you when you're preparing for the staffing season or staffing in general. And the first element you got to watch out for is to have strong and fresh writing samples that match the shows you're going after. Samples are kind of the prequels to staffing season and not the Star Wars prequels, the good prequels, meaning you shouldn't be finishing your new sample right before your reps are sending them out. You got to have them figured out way in advance and reps will actually try to match your samples with the shows they're sending you out for. Reps will probably strategize as to what shows you should be going after and don't leave all of it on their shoulders. Be proactive, as we said earlier in this episode, about shows being produced and developed. Let them know if you think this great fantasy sample you just finished is that perfect script to send to this new Lord of the Rings writer's room. It's useful to have a range of samples that are still within your wheelhouse to give you the most opportunities when it comes to staffing. Now, if you're a comedy writer, you might have a half-hour single cam and a multi-cam script, an 11-minute animated script, or even you know a network single cam family comedy and also a raunchy cable dramedy. But 
don't feel like you need to have all of your bases covered. I think it's better to have multiple strong samples in exactly the kind of stuff you want to write than maybe one okay sample in every possible kind of show you could get staffed in as a comedy writer. You know, think about what you're passionate about and what you want to spend the rest of your life working in and then concentrate your focus in that area. You know, having a niche isn't always a bad thing. As we've talked about before, it helps to brand you. The next element is to never overlook the importance of a personal network. When it comes to staffing and getting those valuable shorter meetings, the reality is that writers originate from one of maybe three places when it comes to those staffing meetings. One is reps, one is direct connections with other writers, and the last one is through the networks and the studios. All things are being equal access, getting in through the studio slash network door may be an easier hurdle to pass through given that you've already been approved by them. Personal network is used in much the same way as for any other job in this industry. People obviously tend to hire friends or former co-workers. Shorter slash EPs receive hundreds if not thousands of submissions and they will definitely not read all of them. That's also when being friendly with assistants is beneficial, as we pointed out, especially shorter assistants who are the ones reading most of the submissions and passing along the recommendations. And when it comes from the rep side, it's a lot about timing. If they're submitting your scripts too early, they'll be hitting against that production wall or that lack of opening. But if they submit it too late, they have to wait the next season cycle. We're talking a matter of days. That is the true game of musical chairs. I think if at the end of the day you don't get the job, and that's going to be the case for the majority of the jobs you apply for, like in everything else, I think it's useful to reflect back and think on what you could have done differently, as well as asking your agent or manager for feedback on why they ultimately didn't go with you. Maybe you were caught off guard when they asked what you thought of episode two and you'd only bothered to watch the pilot, so you know you came <laughs> off unprepared. Or perhaps you were a little too dry and formal and by the numbers because you were nervous. Or maybe you weren't making eye contact or involving the other two people in the room because you were too focused on impressing the showrunner. You know, sure, chances are they aren't going to deny you the job if you're a great writer because your shirt had a mustard stain on it, but there's often something that you can learn from the experience and take with you to the next meeting. Uh, maybe you did need one more polish on that sample to make it beat out the competition, and that was the kind of tiebreaker for them. There are a ton of okay writers out there who could probably do the job just fine, but you need to do everything in your power to elevate yourself to a great writer and personality in the room, and make yourself stand out above the pack and be undeniable. You want them to come away from that meeting feeling actively excited about the idea of hiring you, not just shrugging their shoulders and saying, nah, I guess they'll do. And let's say you went through all this work and you've taken all of our advice and you've aced all those meetings, but you still did not get the job. Then much like relationships, remember that it isn't your fault ever. It's the other person's. I'm just kidding. Halfway. <laughs> but uh, in the case of staffing season, nine times out of 10, they probably did not hire you because of an external factor. Maybe the position got filled by an assistant who was already about to be promoted. Maybe they just ran out of money. Maybe someone came back from last season. Whatever the case may be, don't get too down on yourself. You could ask your rep what needs to be improved, but by and large, the ball is in their court, not yours. Ultimately, you should be striving to improve yourself and be personable. But don't beat yourself up either if at the end of the day, you can't get a seat at the table because staffing season is a ruthless time of year. What a bleak note to end this on. <laughs> da, da, da. I think, uh, yeah, to add to that, obviously it can be dispiriting to come away from maybe taking five, six, 10 meetings and not getting any of these jobs. You must think, oh, this is something I must be doing wrong, but it is just a numbers game at the end of the day. And it is about persistence and just keeping on at it, keeping on turning out that good stuff. And I think that, you know, there have been a lot of writers that have proved that if you stick with it, eventually things will happen for you. Just keep dancing until the music stops. <laughs>
All right, what are some takeaways from this episode? Number one, traditional staffing season for broadcast networks happens at the beginning of the year around spring, when the majority of TV writing jobs are available to be filled. Number two, there are multiple gatekeepers through which writers can be considered for staffing, including the production company, the network, the studio, and ultimately the showrunner. Number three, the best way to prepare for staffing is to cultivate your network and relationships, to have relevant samples ready and polished, and to be taking good meetings around town. And lastly, be yourself and make a real human connection in the room. How well you get along with these decision makers might be the number one most important factor in whether or not you get hired. Do we have any resources for our listeners this week, Alex? Well, this week I'm going to recommend Jane Espenson's blog. Years before I even started TV Calling, Jane Espenson was regularly writing her own TV writing blog, discussing her own path into the industry and a trove of advice about the writer's room. Some of the content may be slightly outdated. After all, it's kind of over a decade old, but it is all still very valuable. So specifically for this episode, I will link in the show notes one of the posts she wrote about staffing season, which I found very valuable. Yeah, there are a number of great Twitter threads out there, too, from various writers talking about staffing season, and they always kind of crop up around that time of year, and people will share them pretty widely because they do have a lot of valuable insight into that. So maybe we'll find a couple of those, or you can search them out yourself. Those are really great inside voices on how that all works. And before we go, our Paper Tease competition is still open for business. If you have a TV pilot teaser of eight pages or less, any format, any genre, you can enter it for free at paperteam.co slash teaser to potentially get feedback on air, win prizes, and be eligible for the Paper Team mentorship. Fancy. Thanks for taking the time to tune in and listen, as always. You can get all the show notes for this episode at paperteam.co slash 101. Three digits. <laughs> it's a 101 on the 101. Uh, and later on, I'm going to drive on the 101 home. Oh, God. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Let's move on. <laughs> uh, if you have some reviews for us, preferably not about my terrible puns, uh, you can leave those for us at paperteam.co slash iTunes. And all of those are going to help us get new listeners and build our little community. And this episode of Paper Team is brought to you by Roadmap Writers. Roadmap Writers give screenwriters the tools needed to take their skills to the next level, with courses taught by industry executives. In just two years, Roadmap has helped 49 writers find representation. Visit roadmapwriters.com and use the code ROADMAP, all caps, all one word, to save $15 off your first program. And as always, I'm on Twitter, at TV Calling. I'm at underscore NJ Watson. If you have any thoughts, feedback, ideas for future episodes, or questions, you can always send them to ask at paperteam.co. And what are we going to be doing next week? Well, next week, we're having a special guest, Michael Masukowa from Secret Location, and he's going to be in the studio to discuss everything relating to VR and emerging platforms. And if you don't know, Secret Location recently did an adaptation of a Philip K. Dick short story into VR for the very first time, which premiered at the Fancy Venice Film Festival. And they've also created experiences across devices, so there will be a lot to unpack. They also did the Sleepy Hollow Fox VR experience. So Nice. And in fact, Secret Location is not the name of the company. He's just hidden away in a secret location, and we're going to be spending the episode trying to find him without maps and orienteering. Hopefully mm -hmm. we can find him and get you an episode. The, it'll be a live stream of us using a metal detector to find Michael throughout the city. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, that'll be an interesting one to listen to. So we'll see you guys then. See ya.